If you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, and this may not be a traditional Palm Sunday passage, but it certainly shows us what was on the mind and heart of our Lord as he was looking forward to that Palm Sunday. So thank you for standing as we open God's Word together. I'm just going to read a few verses now. We'll come back and look. Uh, I really, so many times, choose one of about four passages here, and we're going to, now don't leave when I say this, we're going to look at all four of those texts that I have preached sermons from, and we're going to hit the main theme of what I think each one of those passages are saying here in Matthew 16. So we'll be looking at verses 13 all the way through 28, about four different uh, subjects that will kind of represent four themes that I want to hit on when it comes to reaching in, that God reached in and he reaches in through Jesus Christ to change hearts and lives. But beginning with verse 13, it says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, or you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Father, we ask that you would reach into our hearts today with that same message, showing us who you are and what you're about, and changing our lives, turning our hearts toward you, empowering us to be all that we can be for your glory, and reaching people who do not know you. Lord Jesus It's in your name right now that we rebuke the enemy. Lord, I know that the devil would love to distract and discourage this morning anyone from hearing what you have to say about who we are and can be in Christ. And Lord, he has no authority here, but Jesus, you have all authority. And your word has the power to change lives by your Holy Spirit. And we ask you to do that this day and then use us as instruments to bring that message of life change to the world We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. There was another hymn, and I decided to be gracious and not spring this on Jeff last minute. Sometimes I'll do that to him. I'll hit him up on a Saturday night and say, hey, you know what we need to do? And uh, I decided not to throw that on him last minute. But I will share the words of it with you, because as I was looking over my sermon notes last night, a song just kept going through my mind, and it's a song that was written by F.E. Lehman many years ago right about a century ago, in fact, he said, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. And with that song going through my mind, I thought, well, I've I've got to kind of look that up and and find out what inspired this powerful song because there's a story behind every song, is there not? And uh, I I know that one of my favorite groups, Mercy Me, has brought this song back out and kind of made it popular again for a new generation, but it's been around and touched a lot of lives for a long time. And I found out as I was reading about the song that the third verse for a long time, they didn't know where it had come from except for the fact that somebody was in an insane asylum and in in the midst of all that they were struggling with and in the midst of their despair, they had penned 
that third verse on the wall in the room where they had been confined in this insane asylum. And that third verse says this, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. They, they later found out that this was an English version of a poem that had been written by a Jewish rabbi almost a millennium earlier, back around the 11th century A.D., And yet it was these words that touched even somebody who we can't imagine what kind of despair or what kind of life circumstances had them in and confined to an insane asylum, but they had penned those words of that poem that later inspired the hymn because we realized that the love of God is something we can't get our mind around and it reaches in and it takes hold of our hearts in the deepest moments of despair. We've talked so far about how God can reach down in Jesus and did reach down, become knowable, visible, and touchable. And then last week we talked about how Jesus then reached out and does so through us and that his message became our mission and his model became our method for the church. But at some point after reaching down and reaching out, God has to reach into the hearts and the souls of man. Something that only God can do by his spirit and through his word, and yet he uses us as instruments in helping to make that happen. But at some point, God has to reach in and capture our hearts. Matthew, in his gospel, you know, each gospel kind of has what we would call a prominent portrait of Jesus Christ. And Matthew's prominent portrait is that Jesus is the king of the Jews, or we might say as Gentiles today that he is the king of hearts. Because when he came, he didn't come the first time to establish his kingdom on earth as maybe many of the Jews had hoped for, but he came to establish his throne in the hearts and lives of men and women, boys and girls who would put their trust in Jesus. He was the king of hearts. And Jesus saw in the distance Palm Sunday and Passion Week and all that would follow was actually approaching quickly by this time. And that he would have touched the hearts of people like even Matthew who wrote this gospel, a tax collector. That's what he had in common with who we looked at last week, right? Zacchaeus, he reached out to Zacchaeus. He reached into the heart of Matthew, changed his life. He wanted to bring people, even the crowds of people, to appoint a decision. But he would see that there would be crowds that would sometimes have insincere cheers and oftentimes foolish jeers, but he wanted to change their lives. That's what he would do through the cross and the resurrection. And so next, next Sunday, we really want you to bring as many people with you as you possibly can and be praying for those people, contacting those people. When Jesus reaches into our hearts and our lives, he's going to reveal about four things, and I want us to see those things. And that's why we're, we're not going to uh, break down this as in as much detail as if I were only dealing with one of these four 
sections of this longer chapter, this longer passage. But I want us to but at least touch on the theme of each one because it shows us what God in Christ is revealing to us and that as we reach out, when we take his word and in his spirit, it allows God to use us so that he can reach into the hearts and lives of others just as he reached in and changed us. And so what does it reveal when Jesus reaches in? Number one, it reveals a personal, intimate knowledge of Christ. It's not enough to know about him. We have to know him personally. And so we go back to verses 13 and 14 that we read a moment ago. He's asking a question there at Caesarea Philippi. Who do people say that I am? And the disciples are responding and naming prophets like Elijah or Jeremiah or John the Baptist who they thought maybe, maybe Jesus' reincarnation, but John the Baptist who would have been executed by this time. Was Jesus more than just a prophet? Absolutely. Was, was, he, was he a prophet of hope like Elijah, there's a better day coming? Was he a prophet of doom and gloom like Jeremiah that says, you're about to get it? Or, or was he something much more than that? And I want to tell you that he was much more than that. Josh McDowell wrote a book titled More Than a Prophet. He was highly influenced by a statement by C.S. Lewis, which says, as C.S. Lewis is quoting what others might say about Jesus, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. And Lewis goes on to say, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. Why? Because he would be lying, right? Lewis goes on to say he would be either a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. We cannot say Jesus was just a good man, a great moral teacher, and a great prophet. He was all that he claimed to be, or he was something evil. In verses 15 through 17, we see him get personal, who do you say that I am? Because we all must come to a place in our life where we acknowledge that. And by the way, Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, whether we acknowledge it or not. But for us to experience all that he has for us, then we must make that acknowledgement. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter says, you are the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of the living God. This great confession of faith. This is who I believe Jesus is. And Jesus responded by saying, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. You weren't smart enough to figure this out on your own. But because my Father has reached inside of you and revealed this in your heart of hearts, you now get it, you now understand it. I'm thankful for people like Lee Strobel and Josh McDowell. I'm thankful for 
other great apologists like Ravi Zacharias, but I've learned something as much as I love the field of apologetics and be able to intellectually explain why I believe what I believe and how to defend it and how to help a generation to grow up and know that you don't have to check your brains at the door to be a Christian, I appreciate that and I'm grateful for that, but I have learned I will never argue somebody into the kingdom of heaven. The Spirit of God and the Word of God must reach in and take hold of their hearts, and that's what Jesus wants to do in your life and in my life and send us out under his anointing to take the message. It's not enough that people would try to conform outwardly in a way to please God because we could never impress God. We need to be changed from the inside out. I asked Miss Jenda Austin earlier if I could use her as a sermon illustration because now it's been, what, a, a year and a half since her heart transplant. She was sick. We were praying for her. She needed more than just medicine. She needed a new heart. And God provided her with a new heart. And now she's so healthy that we can't keep up with her, right? And and God's done some wonderful things in her life. And and, and so sometimes we look at at outward things when it comes to the Christian faith, and and we're thinking, man, what, what I need is to change this, and I need to change that. I need to behave this way, and I need to behave that way, and I need to look a certain way and dress a certain way and talk a certain way. And sometimes we try to take that to the world and impose those outward confirmations on them. And what God is saying to us in his word is that you need the Holy Spirit and the word of God to reach in and give you a heart transplant. The heart of our problem is the problem of the heart. That heart needs to be changed And we need, listen, if Jeremiah said the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things, who can know it? Then we need the heart of God, not our own heart. And when Jesus shed his blood for us on Calvary, he was giving us a new heart. He was reaching in to reveal an intimate knowledge of Christ so that we come to a place where I say that Jesus Christ is Lord of my life and he's going to empower me to live for him, which kind of reveals the next thing for us, the purpose of the church. So secondly, I want you to see that that Jesus reaches in to reveal to us now as his children what we are here for. Why did God leave you on this planet? And so he says, I say to you that you are Peter, a word that sometimes refers to a smaller rock, and on this rock, the big rock, I will build my church. Now, he was not saying to Peter, who, by the way, was speaking on the half, and we can tell by the plurality of the pronouns, he was speaking on behalf of all of the apostles. And so he wasn't saying, Peter, you are the rock on which I will build my church. He was saying, Peter, the confession that you made concerning who Jesus is, is the rock on which I will build my church. On this rock, that you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, that he came and he lived, and he would explain here in a moment that he would die and rise again. On this rock I will build my church, and he says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now I want you to be aware of something. Gates are stable. So many times we feel like that's good. When the gates of hell assault us, then we will be strong enough in Christ to overcome the devil. And it is true that when we are attacked by the enemy, that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And if I resist the devil, he has to flee from me. I am thankful for that this morning. 
But when we see the imagery of gates, it's the idea of something that's trying to hold us back from being those who would advance, those who would be proactive. And so what Jesus was saying here is that when we take the kingdom of the light of his love into this world, the gates of hell can't resist. So it's not a matter this morning of whether or not you're afraid of the devil today. It's a question of, is the devil afraid of you because you're advancing his kingdom or you're advancing the kingdom of our God against his kingdom, pushing back the kingdom of darkness? He says, the gates of hell won't be able to hold you back. Why? Because I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth is already bound. The literal translation will have been bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth is that which will have already been loosed in heaven. And that's why in Matthew's gospel, he also taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, let us as the church be a preview of coming attractions of all that will be in the coming kingdom, the millennial reign of Christ. Let the church model the lordship of Christ. We are be to, to advance this mission and this message in the world so that people can look at your life, your home, and say, man, that's what it looks like to live under the authority and under the power of Almighty God. Sometimes we're not a great preview of coming attractions. But he says, you get to represent me. You get to go forth in my authority and my power in this world. That's why in Acts 1.8, Jesus would say, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be what? My witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. What authority do you have to go forth and witness to these people and pray for these people? You have the authority of Jesus Christ who died for these people that we're praying for, who died for you and has said, now that you've put your faith and trust in me, you are my witness to them, and that's the purpose of the church. Do you ever realize the church is here for the people who aren't here? And I'll tell you, church, there are churches all over the state of Georgia in decline today. There are churches all over this nation that think the reason they exist is to keep everyone there comfortable and happy. And as a church, we have to believe that God has left us here because we are here for those who aren't here. The 400 plus people we met at the park, that's who we're here for. The billions around the world that don't know Christ, that's who we're here for. And we can make ourselves miserable if we think that we're here for ourselves, arguing over how to make us happy and content. We're here for those who aren't here yet. So we need to interpret this in light of what Jesus said he was about. If we're about his mission Then what did he say he was about? In Luke chapter 4, Jesus opens the scroll of the prophet Isaiah in verse 17. In verses 18 and 19, Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. That there's going to be a day where he has died for the sins of the world. He has risen, and his spirit has descended upon his church, and now we're in an age of grace where we're taking that good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world that needs to hear it. That's our purpose. He would use that word authority again in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's gospel, 
in chapter 28 when he would say, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. We looked at the other two verses last week. Go, or as you are going, make disciples of all nations. But before you go, I want you to know that I have all authority, and I'm giving you that authority. You go in my name. And as you go in my name and in my power and in my authority, people will come to a saving knowledge of Christ. The songs that we sang this morning were full of those words that we're looking at here in the Scripture now. Do we sing them and then forget them when we walk out the door, or do we go to see people set free by the power of God? I read in a devotion this week about a couple who had a little boy many years ago. They were walking through a, a, a large wheat field to take a shortcut to their home, and their little boy was one of these that unfortunately just found a way to get away, and he had gone and and he had gotten away from his parents in the wheat field. They got an off, and they started yelling for him, looking for him. They couldn't find him anywhere. And, and so they got a few other people to help, and they started looking and couldn't find him. Looking, couldn't find him. They, they, they were just kind of making some kind of pattern all over the place. And, and somebody realized, unfortunately, too late, somebody realized, you know, if we just join hands, and this was after a, a freezing cold night, they said, if we just join hands and walk through these fields. Maybe we'll find him. And so the entire community joined hands, and they walked through so that they didn't leave any place overlooked, and and, and then they found his cold, lifeless body too late. And somebody said, if we had only joined hands earlier, if we had thought of that earlier, and I pray that when it comes to the lost in this world, we won't be saying about the church, if we had only joined hands, if we had only come together, if we had only been unified for the sake of the gospel and more concerned about the lost and our purpose here than we are about ourselves, we would be storming the gates of hell as liberators, not in a defensive posture. We would be going forth to make disciples of all nations starting with our own Jerusalem. Satan has occupied the territory, and we've been called and given the power and authority to liberate. He reveals the purpose of the church. He reaches in also to reveal the plan of the cross. To reveal the plan of the cross. Now, this message loses a little bit of popularity with the disciples as he changes his tone, especially Peter. Look at verse 21. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and raised on the third day. Now, we might read this in retrospect and think, how could they miss that? I mean, that's pretty straightforward, is it not? Here's what's going to happen. We're going to suffer many things from the religious crowd I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to be raised on the third day. We look back and say, that's the gospel. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, that you know we shouldn't listen to any other message but this message, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, was buried and rose again on the third day. But they were so looking forward to him establishing his kingdom on earth that he will do in the second advent that they were looking forward in the first advent, and they missed it. And so what did Peter have to say about that? He took him aside and said, oh, no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Now, I love Peter. Peter's always the first one to speak up on behalf of everybody else or just on behalf of himself. I mean, he's the one who got out of the boat and walked on water, right? 
And we criticize him for losing sight of Jesus and losing faith and sinking, but he did step out of the boat. Peter's the one who opened his mouth and said, I'll tell you who you are. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he had to be feeling pretty good that Jesus had said, blessed are you, Peter. You didn't figure that, man, my father has revealed something to you. Peter had to be thinking, yeah, I'm pretty close to God right now. Then he says, we're not going to let you be killed. And Jesus, in the passage that follows the great praise that Peter had received, then says, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) You are an offense to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but man's. Jesus was revealing that the cross was part of his plan. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus would go over again and again. Listen, all these rules from the Old Testament and, and the traditions of man, and you've heard it said, but I say, you've heard it said, but I say, if I don't die for the sins of the world, we'll never change their hearts. You've heard it said, you shall not commit murder, but I'm telling you, if you hold hate in your heart, and if you tell somebody you fool, then, then you're guilty of bloodshed. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you, if you've looked on a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in the heart. And so the only answer for the sinfulness of man was that the God-man, one fully God, fully man, the only one who could pay the price for sin could represent the only ones who owed a price for sin and die in our place on Calvary's cross and then rise again on the third day and next Sunday. We're going to celebrate that resurrection in a big way, but the cross of Christ is something we must not rush past because that's where... Jesus would victoriously overcome our sin and cry out, it is finished. Verse 23, he says, you're not thinking about God's concerns, but man's. You want to be safe, you want to say everything's a-okay, you want to keep me safe, but that's not God's plan. God's not concerned about just keeping us safe. If we take up our cross and follow him, He may choose to bless us in ways that we may think are unsafe so that through us, he can bless this world. Now, I want to be a blessing, and I told you how to do that last Sunday. You can bless somebody, and I want to remind you because I want this to get kind of ingrained in you. Take that word bless and think of the person whose name that you're praying for, and B, begin with prayer. L, listen to them, hear what they're saying, right? E, eat with them, fellowship with them in some way, get a cup of coffee with them. S, serve them in some way. That's why we were at the park in Danielsville. Reach out and be a blessing to them. And then the final S, and this is important because at some point, you've got to share the gospel, right? And so you can witness by example and serve and love all you want to, but if you don't get to the point of the gospel, you'll still miss the point because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So share your story. Share how you came to faith in Christ with them. And that story should include the gospel of faith and repentance, belief in what Jesus did on the cross of Christ. Don't just get them to ask Jesus into their hearts. Now, that language doesn't bother me so much, but you've got to explain the language because we're saved by grace through faith in Christ, and so they've got to 
confess that they're a sinner. They've got to believe that Jesus died on a cross for their sins. They've got to believe that he rose from the grave, and they've got to repent, turn from sin and self, and trust in Christ alone. And so you share how you did that in your life. You share your story and ask if they would be willing to make the same decision. He reveals the plan of the cross, and we need to be reaching into the hearts and lives of men and women, boys and girls, and revealing God's plan for the cross. If we're so good, if we think we're okay, we need to look to the cross and ask, why did Jesus have to die? And finally, this morning, I want you to see that he reveals a promise. He reveals the promise of his coming again. Now, if you look at verses 24 and 25, he said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I'm sorry, I'm in verse, chapter 15 here. But <laughs> chapter 15, I thought that looked a little bit strange for the text here. Uh, chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus said to his disciples, if any man wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And so the cross that he was called to bear, he will now call us to take up, to deny self, and come and follow him. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. The kind of life that he's calling us to is the kind of life where Paul said, I am crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live. Christ now lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We don't take up our cross to pay the price for our own salvation. We take up our cross because Jesus so loved us that he gave his life for us that all hell was poured out on him on Calvary's cross for us. And now because he has saved us and empowered us, we decide to live the crucified life and follow him in making him known in this world. And according to verse 23, we can easily become more concerned about the things of this world than we are about the things of God. What are we living for? Which world are we living for? Are we worried about what people think? Are we worried about how we'll look to our friends and our neighbors, our classmates? Are we worried that somebody might make fun of us if we say we're a Christian and we have Christian standards and Christian morals? Jesus says, I want you to know you better be living for a better world than this. You better not be worried about what people think of you. Verse 26, what will it benefit if he gains the whole world and loses his own life in the world to come? What will a man give in exchange for his life? You say, well, then what is it that we're living for? Aren't we living for the best that this world has to offer? Verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will reward each according to what he has done. I assure you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, there would be some that would 
witness the transfiguration of Christ and see Jesus in all of his glory. But for all of us, that's the kingdom we're living for, where Jesus reigns in all of his glory, which means we've got to deny to this world and deny self and die to self and come alive in Christ by surrendering and submitting to his spirit's work in our lives as we turn from self and follow the gospel of Christ and make it known in the world. Last night, I watched the end of a movie I'd been wanting to see the end of for some time. It's, one, it's a movie, quite honestly, that I couldn't show you a clip this morning because it was a little, little bit too gory of a movie, but because a fellow pastor recently shared about this closing scene, I said, I really need to see that. It was the movie Hacksaw Ridge. Some of you have seen it on the History Channel been playing again and again. I said, you know, I've got to watch the end of that. Got to watch the end of that. And so last night, I said, I'm going to watch the end of it. I'm telling you, what I, I saw there, I had to really look it up and say, could this, could this really be a true story? And, and the fact that it is a true story. Desmond Doss, private first class, Desmond Doss, received a Congressional Medal of Honor for his efforts in the Battle of Okinawa. He was the first conscientious objector to ever receive this award. The reason he received it is because he insisted on being a medic even though he didn't want to carry a gun. And because he didn't want to be a coward and he wanted to represent his country as a medic, he decided to, I'm going to save as many lives as I possibly can. And he had been put down by many others who couldn't understand. And, and I'll have to admit, even in my own hermeneutic of Scripture, I'm like, now, there are certain times that we have the right to bear arms and use arms in defending the innocent. But despite having a different her- hermeneutic, he was heroic nonetheless. And if you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about, or maybe you've read the story. Desmond Doss didn't die until 2006, but he had told the story many times by then. But as they had to take this ridge, Hacksaw Ridge, it was so vital to the Battle of Okinawa where hundreds of thousands of people lost their lives, both U.S., East, civilians, you name it. It was one of the bloodiest battles in the history of warfare. And every time they would try to take this ridge known as Hacksaw Ridge, it would be too intense. And so as you watch the movie, you see that as, as these soldiers have to retreat, this medic sees all of his comrades out there dying on this ridge. And without a weapon, he stays. And he will go and he will find one who is wounded, almost unto death, and he will minister. And he found a rope and a way to lower him down. He lowered so many men down. He saved 75 lives. As he would let this rope slide through his hands, you just see his hands bloody and bleeding. And he would go back every time that he would save a life, he would hear somebody else cry out, help me save me. 
And he would go back and he would tell another as he was saving one life, he would tell another, I'm coming back for you. And he went back again and again and again to the amazement of the troops the next morning that saw that he had saved 75 lives, lowering them down one at a time from Hacksaw Ridge. But here's the part that stood out to me among anything else in this true story. And and it's the part in a a post-movie interview that the History Channel was showing that Desmond Dawes recounted and said, this this was true, this, this happened. He said, every time I would send one down, I would pray to God, Lord, give me one more. He would say, give me one more. And he would go back into the battle. And I was so convicted watching that because we go through all of the routines of ministry. Sometimes we lose sight of who we're here for. And when it comes to the hearts and souls of men and women that Jesus wants to reach in and change, I pray that we'll leave this place today as we approach Easter and we get ready to celebrate the one who gave his life for us on Calvary's cross, that we'll leave this place today saying, Lord, give me one more. Lord, help me to reach one for you. And when we do, we'll say, okay, Lord, give me one more. Lord, give me one more. Who is your one? Who's the one that God's called you to reach with his love? Who has God called you to bless this week? To invite to church next Sunday? To have a meal with and share why you're so weird and different from them? Who's your one more? Would you bow your heads with me?